Over the last several weeks, we've been searching the Scriptures for God's instruction on spiritual leadership. And thus far, we've seen many, many things that the Bible teaches us on this important matter of what it means to be an elder. You remember going all the way back to the beginning, we saw, for instance, the calling of an elder. And I told you that there were were several facets of how a man could know that he's being called by God to serve as an elder. And then we also began to look at the character or the conduct of an elder. And I split all of those qualifications that we find in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 into particular categories. And you remember the first was his moral life, that he was above reproach. And then we talked about his morality. And then we looked at another category, his, his thinking, uh, his life of the mind, and what he needs to do to think clearly in order to serve as an elder. And then we looked also at his social life or his reputation, both inside and outside the church. And that's where we looked at in this third category last time, so as to see that there are clear guidelines in God's Word for the examination and the qualification of an elder in God's church. And this morning I want to look at two more of these overarching categories, the capabilities of an elder and the creed of an elder, or what he teaches. The capability of an elder and the creed of an elder. And we want to center in first and foremost on this phrase in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, he is able or apt to teach. He's able or he is apt to teach. Now, as I did a couple of weeks ago, I shared with you a fanciful story about how someone would look at Paul the missionary. And this morning, I have another one of these apocryphal stories about Paul the teacher. And it is written by the Presbyterian Church in Asia Minor and their Committee on Qualifications. This is their ordination committee. And they're writing to Paul the Apostle in care of Aquila the tent maker from Corinth, Greece. And here's what the coordinator of this committee, who's one Charles Finney, says to the Apostle Paul. Dear Paul, we recently received a copy of your letter to the Galatians. The committee has directed me to inform you of a number of things which deeply concern us. First, We find your language to be somewhat intemperate. In your letter, after a brief greeting to the Galatians, you immediately attack your opponents by claiming that they, quote, want to pervert the gospel of Christ, unquote. You then say that such men should be regarded as, quote, accursed, unquote. And in another place, you make reference to, quote, false brethren, unquote. Wouldn't it be more charitable to give them the benefit of the doubt? 
at least until the General Assembly has investigated and adjudicated the matter. To make the situation worse, you later say, quote, I could wish those who trouble you would even cut themselves off, unquote. Is such a statement really fitting for a Christian minister? The remark seems quite harsh and unloving. Paul, we really feel the need to caution you about the tone of your epistles. You come across in an abrasive manner to many people. In some of your letters, you've even mentioned names. And this practice has no doubt upset the friends of Hymenaeus, Alexander, and others. After all, many persons were first introduced to the Christian faith under the ministries of these men, although some of our missionaries have manifested regrettable shortcomings. Nevertheless, it can only stir up bad feelings when you speak of these men in a derogatory manner. In other words, Paul, I believe you should strive for a more moderate posture in your ministry. Shouldn't you try to win those who are in error by displaying a sweeter spirit? By now, you've probably alienated the Judaizers to the point that they will no longer listen to you. By your outspokenness, you have also diminished your opportunities for future influences throughout the church as a whole. Rather, if you had worked more quietly, you might have been asked to serve on a presbytery committee appointed to study the issue. You could then have contributed your insights by helping to draft a good committee paper on the theological position of the Judaizers without having to drag personalities into the dispute. Besides, Paul, we need to maintain unity among those who profess a belief in Christ. The Judaizers at least stand with us as we confront the surrounding paganism and humanism which prevail within the culture of the contemporary Roman Empire. The Judaizers are our allies in our struggles against abortion, homosexuality, government tyranny, etc. We cannot afford to allow differences over doctrinal minutiae to obscure this important fact. I also must mention that questions have been raised about the contents of your letters as well as your style. The committee questions the propriety of the doctrinaire structure of your letter. Is it wise to plague young Christians like the Galatians with such heavy theological issues? For example, in a couple of places you allude to the doctrine of election. You also enter into a lengthy discussion of the law. Perhaps you could have proved your case in some other ways without mentioning these complex and controverted points of Christianity. Your letter is so doctrinaire it will probably serve only to polarize the differing factions within the churches. Again, we need to stress unity instead of broaching issues which will accent divisions among us. In one place you wrote, quote, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing, unquote. Paul, you have a tendency to describe things strictly in black and white terms as if there is no gray area. You need to temper your expressions, lest you become too exclusive. Otherwise, your outlook will drive away many people and make visitors feel unwelcome. Church growth is not promoted by taking such a hard line and remaining inflexible. Remember, Paul, there is no such thing as a perfect church. 
We have to tolerate many imperfections in the church since we cannot expect to have everything at once. If you simply think back over your own experience, you will recall how you formally harassed the church in your times of ignorance. By reflecting on your own past, you might acquire a more sympathetic attitude toward the Judaizers. Be patient and give them some time to come around to a better understanding. In the meantime, rejoice that we all share a common profession of faith in Christ since we all have been baptized in His name. Sincerely, Charles Finney, spelled P-H-I-N-N-E-Y, Coordinator, Committee. Now that's something that actually might be written today. That might come from a church committee where you and I might have attended at some point. Because we live in a culture in which doctrine is so de-emphasized that really there is little, very little doctrine in the churches at all. And I mean, when I say doctrine, some of the basics of the doctrinal verities of the Christian faith. Not all kinds of complex theological terms and matters and issues with which there are theologians who sometimes disagree. I'm talking about even the basics of the faith. And it seems to me that that particular committee would have gone against not only Paul, but John and Peter and Mark and others who are writers of the New Testament simply because they were indeed teaching the truth of the doctrines of the Word of God. And yet, you find right here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, and essential requirement of someone who's to serve as an elder. Do you see it there? Verse 1 says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer or an elder or a pastor must be above reproach, a one-woman man, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and here's our phrase, able to teach. Well, you might have the ability to teach, but what is it that you teach? Isn't that the all-important question? What is it that a person teaches? I mean, a person could have great ability. A person could have great facility with language. He could be a man who loves the study. He could be a man who is erudite and articulate. And he could have intensity and passion within his life. But the essential matter is, to what does he teach? For what does he teach? In what does he teach? Does he teach his own views? Does he teach his own life? Does he use illustrations about contemporary society? Uh, Does he seek to speak of implications about the world in which we live? Or does he occupy himself in the main with the idea of what the Word of God teaches and its clear and passionate communication to the flock? George Liddell said, Give me a man of God, one man, 
whose faith is master of his mind. And I will right all wrongs and bless the name of all mankind. Give me a man of God, one man, whose tongue is touched with heaven's fire. And I will flame the darkest hearts with high resolve and clean desire. Give me a man of God, one man, one mighty prophet of the Lord. And I will give you peace on earth, bought with a prayer and not a sword. Give me a man of God, one man, true to the vision that he sees. And I will build your broken shrines and bring the nations to their knees. See, we're looking for a man of God. That's what God is looking for. A man of God. Robert Murray McShane, the great Scottish preacher who died as a young man, said, Do not forget the culture of the inner man, I mean the heart. How diligently the cavalry officer keeps his saber clean and sharp. Every stain he rubs off with the greatest care. Remember, you are God's sword, His instrument. I trust a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name. In great measure, according to the purity and perfections of the instrument, will be the success. It is not great talent, Robert Murray McShane says, it is not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. And then he says these famous words, a holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. Awful in the sense of awesome, penetrating, God-glorifying. And you know where it starts? I mean, we've looked at all these character qualities, and they are utterly essential. We've looked at them in detail. I've defined the words. We've looked and poured over some uh, related passages of the New Testament. And we have looked at these passages and we've seen the idea of the man's call and his capabilities and they are rich and, and this is a high bar. But there's another aspect and that is his ability by God's own design to teach and preach the Word of God with precision and with power. This is the man's capability. It's directly related to his ability to be a polished teacher of the Word of God. By the way, that phrase there, apt to teach, the word teach, didacticon, it's only used twice here in 1 Timothy 3.2 and 2 Timothy 2.24. Turn over there for a moment with me. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. This is where that word to teach, this particular word, is used. And it is a powerful passage. 2 Timothy 2, 24. And the Lord's slave, the Lord's doulos, the Lord's bond slave, bond servant, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Here's that phrase, able to teach, apt to teach, skilled to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You know what we're talking about? We're talking about a person who is called by God, 
capably qualified to be God's elder, God's pastor, because of all of those character qualities that we talked about, and that he's apt to teach, that he's skilled in teaching for this vocation. Here it is, that he not be quarrelsome, kind to everyone, that he patiently endures evil, and that he corrects his opponents with gentleness, so that God perhaps, through him and through his ability to teach, would would bring people to repentance and a knowledge of the truth and that they would come to their senses and escape devilish lies. Now that's, that's no small vocation, my friends. That's no small vocation. Every vocation is important. Everything that you do in your life is important. What God has called you to do in whatever your work is, is vital. It's vital to God's program, vital to the world. You have a vital part, and so is this. And this is so vital, it is so important that the skill of a man as God's slave is to teach with such kindness and with a lack of quarreling and with a bevy of patience so that his opponents, those who oppose him and his teaching, would, by his gentleness and correction, be granted by God repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they could be lifted out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's no small vocation. No wonder Robert Murray McShane and others say, you're an awful instrument in the hand of God. This is, this is what we're looking for. It is the one who is qualified to teach, who manifests such skill in his teaching that it actually separates an elder from a deacon. Deacon is to have all these character qualities. The church in general is to manifest these kinds of qualities. But an elder stands above the congregation in the sense that he's been called by God and gifted and skilled by God to teach in such a way that those who are opposing such a teaching will see that correction rendered in in their life in such a way that their defenses are brought down, that Satan's kingdom is brought to nothing, and that person will be as a brand from the burning, raised from the fire, so that they are Christians forever and a day. This is is a holy and awesome task. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, just a, a few verses from where we've just read. Verse 14 says, remind them, does Paul to Timothy, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. In other words, if you're going to fight a battle, fight the battle on the real issues, not the externals. Verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, tested and found worthy, a worker. This is your job. This is your vocation. This is your life. This is your training. This is your education. Who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. I love that phrase, rightly handling. It's the idea of Paul borrowing a word out of his vocation as a tent maker. 
And sometimes he, he was a tent maker and was doing ministry, and at other times he was wholly doing ministry. And as a tent maker, they didn't have the kinds of nice designs and the nice equipment and tools that you and I have today, and so they would have to do patchwork skins of animals, and they would have to bring them together, and of course it wasn't so easily brought together, and so they had to cut it straight, these animal skins, so that they would all fit in such a way that that particular animal skin would be of optimum use. They had to cut it straight. So instead of saying handling accurately, we might say that Paul is encouraging Timothy to cut it straight, the word of truth. You've got to cut it straight. If you don't cut it rightly, then you can have jagged edges. You can have misshaped pieces. You can have wrong doctrine. That's his point. This is, this is utterly clear and crucial. Because if we're not taught by the ones who are skilled in teaching, we wouldn't know how to properly worship, or pray, or give, or serve, or evangelize, etc. That's why I told you last time that a man has to be called to this office. It's a calling. It's what God is doing. It's so easy for us to see this by way of just Sentence logic, right? If God wants to build a church, which He does, and if Jesus Christ says the church is to be built and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and that's what Jesus wants, and that's what He's doing, and that's what He's building the church to do, and if the church is to have leaders, as God says in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, and if those leaders are to be those who are properly leading, then God will call such a men to lead the church, which is the church that He's building, which is the church which is the buttress and pillar of the truth, so that God calls men to lead the church so that the church could be all that God wants it to be through its leaders as those in the congregation follow such leadership. So the premium is on the leaders to be involved in the skill of leading properly and teaching well, right? It's not hard to figure all, all of that out. If you want a passage, 1 Corinthians twelve twenty eight, and he has appointed teachers. He's appointed teachers. How do you appoint someone a teacher if he's not called to such an office? Makes no sense. And, and in 1 Corinthians 12, he's appointed these teachers so that they might serve. And Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And he gave, that is Christ gave, as gifts, some as apostles and prophets to lay the foundation of the church according to Ephesians 2.20 and evangelists. And then for our day, pastors and teachers or pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. You see what God is doing? And God is, is doing it every day, even while you and I sleep. God is doing a church work. He's doing a church building. He's evangelizing through evangelists and He's teaching through teachers so that the church, the body of Christ, would be built up so that when I teach you here, you are equipped then to go out and evangelize and teach and disciple others. That's the way it goes. That's what it is. That's, that's what Ephesians 4 says. I don't do all of the work of the ministry. In fact, I only do really one 
part of it. Now, it's a big part, but it's one part of it. So that I equip you so that you can therefore be equipped in this service so you can go out and scatter in order to evangelize and multiply in the discipleship chain that starts in the first century and continues on, and it's at least in the 21st century because that's where we live. Right? This is, this is what we do. That's why when we come here, I'm going to make an assumption that most of the persons who are sitting here are believers so that I'm equipping you and I'm talking to you as believers. Now, I know in a crowd like this, there are going to be those who are here, whether they're visiting with us, they're not members with us, who may not even be Christians. I realize that. I'm I'm delighted that you're here. I'm delighted that you've come. And you got a sneak peek of what we're doing so that we can be better equipped so that we can talk to you, unbeliever, about the gospel. So thanks for joining us today. It's wonderful to have you. And we want you to come. But what you're doing is you're seeing what the preacher does when he equips the saints for the work of ministry. And part of the work of ministry is so that the saints could be better equipped so that they could reach out to an unevangelized person who needs to be evangelized so that they could come to faith in Jesus Christ so that they could be another in the living link of the chain of redemption so that they could come in and they too could be equipped for service and then they go out as well and they evangelize others. And they disciple others. And they nurture others. And they teach others. And they they rejoice with others. And they suffer with others because they have been used by God to be equipped for the work of ministry, the work of service. And it starts with the preacher who is well-equipped. That's why Romans 12.7 says, We are told that one of the spiritual opportunities, ministries of the church, are those who teach. Those who teach. It doesn't just mean even the preacher. It doesn't just mean what he's doing. It's teaching for those in Sunday school. It's teaching for those in children's ministry. It's teaching for those in young adults. It's teaching for those in men's ministry and women's ministry and adult ministries and other ministries of the church and missions and evangelism and outreach and all of the various teachers in the body. We're all teaching to equip the saints. 1 Timothy 4.6, Paul says a good minister is one and I love this, who is constantly nourished on sound teaching, sound doctrine. Now, I know just because I read that foolish uh, made-up article where Paul was being confronted about his letter to the Galatians, but that's honestly what some people think when they hear the word doctrine. Oh, no, no, no. Doctrine divides. Doctrine divides. We don't need to be involved in all kinds of doctrinal disputes as though the word doctrine from a Christian standpoint is a dirty word. It's not a dirty word. And do you know that the times that the ESV translates the word teaching is the word doctrine? And at times it's translated doctrine? Doctrine's not a bad word. Doctrine's life-giving. It's life-giving. That's why when Paul puts the adjective on the word teaching or doctrine, and he says good doctrine. And do you know what the word good means? It's a hygienic term. It actually is where we get the word hygiene, and it means healthy doctrine. Healthy doctrine. That's what good doctrine is. It's health-giving. It's life-giving. And that's what we have. This is what God tells us. He says in 1 Timothy 4.13, he tells Timothy to give attention, now listen to this, to the public reading of Scripture, 
to exhortation and doctrine. Now that's a, that's a calling. That's a mandate. He says, Timothy, if you're going to be a preacher in God's household, you have to be involved in this. The public reading of Scripture, which is why I read, that this is why we have you stand up in reverence for God's Word. This is why Tim spoke of the thanksgiving out of a psalm. This is why we read Scripture. This is why we don't apologize for it. I've heard people say, man, all of the stand up, sit down, read the Scripture... It's life-giving. It's healthy. It's good doctrine. It means something. Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's able to cut through even the divisions, not only of heart and soul, but of joints and marrow to go right to the very intentions of the human heart. I can't do that. I could be up here flapping my gums for an hour trying to get you to do something and it will have no effect if I'm not using the Word of God. No effect whatsoever. And you know what? That's actually what churches are doing. So many of them, they're using the style of the preacher. They're using the ability of his ability to get people to laugh or cry or be emotional or be jerked from side to side, from pillar to post, simply because they want an an intended emotional effect, which I think is like what has been called popcorn preaching. I mean, it's great going down. I love popcorn. Ask my wife. I love popcorn. I'd rather have popcorn for for the most luscious dinner because popcorn is fun. But my wife reminds me, popcorn is of very little to no nutritional value. As opposed to what we do, someone called it porridge preaching. I mean, it goes down hard, but man, it sure sticks to the bones. This is, this is why we preach. This is why we teach. This is why we don't apologize. Because the mandate from Paul to Timothy is my mandate. Lance, you must give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation. That means applying the Scripture, teaching the Scripture in its contemporary setting, and doctrine. He even says in verse 16 of 1 Timothy 4, pay close attention to yourself and to your doctrine. That's why I pay close attention to it. That's why we have these men's meetings that we have. 6 a.m. Tuesday morning, 6 a.m. Thursday morning, 7 a.m. Saturday morning. Uh, We have one Friday morning at Eggs and Things that Joel Tiefel leads. There are other studies. There are other Bible studies going on. Why? Because these things, these doctrinal truths of the Christian faith, they are so important. And you know, we forget so easy. We forget so easily. Some people have said, well, what is it? Is it forgetfulness or familiarity? I say both. We forget truths, and then we become so familiar with truths. And then we have those who don't really want to hear truth much at all. And they've asked the question, uh, do you think that's because of ignorance or apathy? And someone said, I don't know and I don't care. That's why we got to teach and we got to remind. And that's why Peter says, I've got to tell you again by way of reminder. And he reminded in actually three different texts that he said, I, I have to remind you of these things. Why? Because it's so easily forgettable, at least with our busy lives. Or it's so familiar to us. Or we don't know or we don't care. 
That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.17, an elder is worthy of receiving double money who works hard at preaching and teaching. Look at 2 Timothy 3.16 for a moment. 2 Timothy 3.16. This is, of course, a passage which I believe is so very familiar to many Christians. And it is for good reason. 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's exhaled by God and profitable for, here it is, teaching, that's doctrine, for reproof, that's reproving our our disobedient lives, for correction when we get off the path, and for training in righteousness. And notice this, verse 17, that the man of God may be complete or adequate, equipped, for every good work. Boy, this is, this is my mandate. You're listening in on my quiet times. You're listening in on me hearing my marching orders from my commander-in-chief. This is, this is what it says. This is what it means. In Titus 2.7, Paul tells Titus to be pure in his doctrine. Pure in your teaching. I found this so helpful. I was reading this to the elders the other night at our elder meeting. There's a brother in our midst. He's a good man. Thabiti Anyabwile. Now, you can't say that three times in a row. Neither can I. Thabiti Anyabwile. It's written a wonderful book called Finding Faithful Elders and Deacons. That's what we're all about right now in our elder meetings. Finding Faithful Elders and Deacons. And this is what he says so helpfully on page 78 under the chapter title, Able to Teach. This is what he says. Paul's criterion, Able to Teach, refers to the ability to communicate and apply the truth of Scripture with clarity, coherence, and fruitfulness. This ability is not limited to public teaching from the pulpit. Men with this ability might be gifted public teachers, or they might simply be gifted for one-on-one or small group settings. That's okay. That's certainly inbounds. Some men are not exceptional public speakers, but they are teaching and counseling the people around them from the Scriptures all the time. I like that. That's a good nuance. Very helpful. He goes on to say, teaching and ability is the unique gift associated with the office of elder, and aspiring men must possess it. He even says at one point, and I think this is so helpful, he says, When you're looking for a man like this, it needs to be asked whether the man demonstrates skill in interpreting a text, outlining a sermon, communicating biblical ideas clearly, applying the scripture appropriately, and anticipating objections and pastoral needs in the body. He said, I had the privilege of serving with two faithful elders who were not good public speakers. One stuttered and the other nervously perspired. But in time, they became two of the best Sunday evening preachers at our church. Why? Because we were patient with them, and they worked at it, and they worked hard. And and they, they couldn't get up here and do what I'm currently doing, because they would be nervous, and they would be perspiring, or they might be stuttering. 
But that's not even in and of itself momentarily a reason to say that person shouldn't serve as an elder. Maybe he can't do this, but maybe as an elder, both with the qualifications and his ability to dispense the Scripture to people in need, he can do that on a one-on-one basis. He can do that in a small group basis. Just because he doesn't do this doesn't mean that he can't be an elder. He might very well be an elder because he has the calling, he has the the characterological capabilities, and he might have the capabilities not necessarily to do this, but maybe to do it out there in the hoi polloi of the churches, in the general people, the boys and the girls. Maybe he can do that in children's ministry in a very, very effective way. Maybe he can do that in a small group ministry, maybe in such an effective way that he's actually more of an effective small group leader than I could ever be. This is why in the, in the, the warp and woof of what you're looking for in an elder, down to the, to the gnat's eyebrow of his character and his calling and his capability, you want a man who's totally sold out for the Lord and who is wanting to shepherd the flock even if he never had the title. That's what you want. That's what you need. You say, well, what is it in terms of a guy who is called upon to do this, what you're doing? Or to do this, maybe not as a vocation, but he's to do this in spot duty. Or maybe he's to lead a a bigger group. Well, here's what I would say. The first thing, of course, is the content itself. He must be teaching the Scripture. That's That's our plumb line. That's our standard. That's our rule. It's not his own opinions. It's not his own stories. It's the Scripture. And I think the second thing is to recognize that he has an accurate understanding of Scripture. In other words, he works hard at seeing Scripture being cut straight, where it's fitting together. There's a a tapestry of his teaching ministry, where he can put passages together, where he can put theology, doctrine together. And I think the third is just his ability. Now, for us to be able to look at this, I want you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Because did you realize that this is what Paul is telling all of the elders in the church at Ephesus, not just Timothy, as he's talking to them on the island of Miletus, as he's going to see them presumably for the last time. And I want you to notice, he's going to talk about the content of Scripture. He's going to talk about the recognition of the the teaching, the adequacy of the teaching of that Scripture, theologically speaking, and then the ability to communicate that truth. And he says it all here in Acts chapter 20. Look at verse 20. This is what he says about himself. He says, How I did not shrink, talking to these elders of the church at Ephesus, how I did not shrink uh, shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And since Scripture is profitable for for teaching, for reproof, for, for correction, for training in righteousness, then Scripture is altogether profitable to be taught. And he says, I didn't shrink from declaring it all to you. Look at what he says in verse 25. He says, I went about preaching the kingdom of God. I, I proclaim to you the kingdom. Yes, look at verse 27. 
He says, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Every phase of God's divine plan. Every area of God's divine work. And then look at verse 31. He says, I also did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. Verse 31. He even had a personal ministry in their lives. This is, this is what we call biblical counseling, right? Biblical discipleship. That's why everybody ought to be involved in that. You say, no, 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 just the elders. Just the elders. No, 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 no. Paul says in Romans 15, 14, these words, I am confident about you, Roman believers, who, by the way, he'd never met because he hadn't founded the church. He wanted to go there on his way to Spain. And he says this, I'm confident about you. I'm convinced of this, that you are filled with goodness. That means that they had become virtuous based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ in their lives. Filled with all knowledge. They had begun to grow in their Christian knowledge up to the point where he was quite confident that they were filled with the knowledge of God and you are able to admonish one another. That's where Jay Adams got his, his title for that famous book that he wrote in 1970. You are competent to counsel. That's, that's where that comes from. That's a legitimate translation of that. You're filled with goodness, you're filled with all knowledge, and you are competent to counsel one another. The whole church should be involved in the kind of training that we're going to provide in February, March, and April because the whole church can be involved and should be in the counseling of one another. Do you know how much time that saves me? If you were to counsel each other. And do you know how much counsel does happen in a local church that I never hear about it, praise God? Because you're counseling one another, you're holding each other accountable, you're sharing the Word of God with each other, and you are filled with goodness, and you're filled with all knowledge, and you are able to counsel, you're competent to counsel one another, so that I don't have to become involved. The elders don't have to become involved. Now, there may be times where that's necessary, but the vast majority of the counsel will be when you are teaching and admonishing and loving and encouraging one another. And that's what Paul is saying. You look at my model, Paul says, and according to verse 31, I didn't, see, I didn't cease to admonish all of you with tears because you as elders needed my admonishment and I did it for a period of three years. So I had this public ministry of teaching and I had this private ministry of discipling and nurturing and admonishing you. Look at what he says in verse 32. I commend you to God and to the word of His grace. This is Scripture. The word of His grace. Scripture. That's why the Bible is so important. That's why Scripture, this is why the Word of God is so prominently featured in our ministry. That's why we have Bible studies. That's why we have two services, Sunday morning and Sunday evening. Uh, it's, It's absolutely critical that we have as much Bible as we can possibly have because of our forgetfulness and our familiarity. And then we need to recognize this teaching in such a way that we're putting it all together. Look at what he says in verses 37 and 38. No wonder they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him. Why? Because his teaching ministry made sense to them. Do you know that there are churches in which people are flooding out because they can't make hide nor hair of what the man is saying up front? What is he saying? What's the point? I don't get it. Unless it's all about him. I mean, look, it takes a tremendous amount of work 
to be easy to understand. I mean, it is, it is hard to be clear. It's hard to be clear. And it's so easy to be unclear. You know how easy it is? Just don't know what you're talking about. That's how easy it is. If I just waltzed up here and I didn't know where I was going, and if I didn't have a word from God, I'd be a blithering idiot because I have nothing else to say other than God's word. This is why when God gives us a word, we better cut it straight. We better get it right. One of the old Puritans was asked the question by somebody, why do you insist on being precise? And he said, because I serve a precise God. He's precise. I want to get it right from Him, and I want to translate it into others. And you say, well, that takes a lot of ability. Yes, it does. Look at verse 31 of Acts 20. Remembering that night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. And apparently it was, a, it was so effective that they were clinging to him and saying, Paul, don't go. Paul, don't go. We need you here. Repeatedly kissing him. Repeatedly embracing him on the neck so that he would be there for them continually. And he had a mission. He had to go. God had to take him away, and he's, he's turning around and he's saying to all of those other elders, now it's your turn, go for it. You guys are skilled, you guys are capable, and you need to go do your ministry, and I need to go over here. He taught them, and they became effective. He says that to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.10. He says, Timothy had in fact followed his teaching. And that's because, according to chapter 1, verse 11, He was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, and so his ministry was effective. I like what Alex Strzok says in his book, Biblical Eldership. Like Israel, the Christian community is built on Holy Scripture. So those who oversee the community must be able to guide and protect it by instruction from Scripture. According to Acts 20, the elders must shepherd the flock of God. A major part of shepherding the flock involves feeding it the Word of God. Therefore, elders must be able to teach in order to do their job. The ability to teach entails three basic elements. A knowledge of Scripture, the readiness to teach, and the ability to communicate. An elder must know the Bible and be able to instruct others from it. Oh, so true. That's the capability of an elder. All right, what about his creed? What does he teach? Look at Titus 1.9. I'm going to show you a positive and a negative before we close, here's the positive and here's the negative. This is the qualification of an elder. This is what he's all about. This is who he is. This is his life. This is his ministry. This is what he's to do. And here's the content of it all. Look at Titus chapter 1, verse 9. He, speaking of the elder, this is the qualifications for an elder, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word. That's Scripture. As taught, as taught, Scripture as it is taught in the pages of the Old and New Testaments, so that, in order that, for the purpose that, he may be able, there's that ability word again, to give instruction in sound doctrine, that's the positive, and also to rebuke or refute or, or contradict those who contradict it. Sound doctrine. Scripture. 
So the positive is, you got to know sound doctrine. The negative is, you got to be able to rebuke those who are trying to contradict such sound doctrine. And I told you, sound doctrine is that word, healthy words, right? Healthy teaching. Well, guess what? If it's not hygienic, then it's diseased, bad doctrine, filthy doctrine. A, a kind of doctrine that's so insidious that if it gets inside your DNA, you're a dead man, spiritually speaking. That's what he says. We've got to watch out for that. We've got to watch out for that. It's the trustworthy or the faithful word and sound doctrine. And an elder simply can't just give you his own creative ideas, his own opinions, his own thoughts, his own speculations, his own theories but he's to adhere to the faithful word. The word's faithful, be faithful to it. Do you remember what the prophet Isaiah said, God speaking through him? Isaiah 55, listen to this. For my thoughts, God speaking through the prophet, my thoughts are not your thoughts, mankind, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth." It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. This is is God saying, I've got a word, right? It's the word of my words, and I have this word, and it's like the rain in the seasons. It's like the, the bread to the sower, and this word will be accomplishing as it goes forth and it bears fruit into that for which I sovereignly send it. If that's my mandate, I better not mess that up. That is a divine mandate. I better not mess that up. You know, half the reason I study as hard as I can is because I'm scared to death. I'm scared to death that I'm going to mess it up. You say, that shouldn't be your motive. I use it all the time. I use it all the time. Don't stand up in this pulpit and misrepresent the God of truth. If he's got a purpose for sending it out there, I better be the vehicle that does the job of making sure it gets sent in the right way. Right? This is is what it says. And notice what Titus 1.9 says. Hold firm to it. Hold firm to it. Hold fast to it. It means to cleave to, to strongly adhere to, to cling to, to be devoted to God's faithful word and to the sound doctrine. This is, this is not an option. This is a scary yet glorious vocation. Scary in the sense that you better get it right. Glorious in the sense that when you see God using you in ministry and people are saved and baptized and they're discipled and they're nurtured and taught and they grow and then they turn around and do that to others, it's glorious because you're trying to hold fast, hold firm. That, that implies this concept of an unshakable, fervent conviction and commitment. 
Strauch again, a man who doesn't tenaciously adhere to orthodox biblical doctrine doesn't qualify to lead God's household because he who is himself in error and unbelief will mislead God's people. Such a man is no match for deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. You know, they're working hard, these doctrines of demons. They're working so hard to misrepresent the truth. And if they're working that hard, we have, that hard, we have to work even harder to make sure that we don't fall prey to how hard they're working to imply and to supply doctrines that are demonic. And it does come back to his ability. A God-given ability... That's why the end of verse 9 says, so that he will be able, notice that word able, it's an ability word, to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Oh, I love the word able there. That is dunatas from dunamai, so that he will be able. He'll have the power, the strength, the ability. Boy, when it gets tired in the wee hours of the morning, and the the candle is burning dim, and you're tired, you ask God for strength and ability and power to continue to read and study because you want to represent His truth well. Acts 18.24, it was said of Apollos that he was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. Boy, that's my epitaph. That's what I want. Competent in the Scriptures. Or... What Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, from childhood, that's from your mother and your grandmother, Lois and Eunice, you've been, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he says what I quoted before. This is, this is you, Timothy. You've been wise unto salvation, and now you've got to study hard. You've got to be a competent, complete, adequate, equipped Man of God for every good work. And negatively, you've got to refute unsound doctrine, which means you've got to traffic in some of it so that you can know how to warn your people about it. Somebody just the other day sat with my wife and I in a counseling situation, and they said, I don't want to listen to the wrong things. I want to listen to the right things. And how about Joyce Meyer? I've been listening to her for a long, long time. And I said, she is a false teacher. Don't ever listen to her again. She's a false teacher. People, don't listen to her. She damns souls because she is damned herself. You see, that sounds like that committee saying, Lance, you sound a lot like Paul. Galatians chapter 1. If you or I or even an angel from heaven is preaching to you a different gospel, I am telling you that that person is accursed. You better teach the right gospel because there really isn't another gospel. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is not the health and wealth prosperity gospel. That's a damning gospel that sends people to a fiery hell forever. Don't believe that gospel. Don't follow people like that. Don't do that. For the sake of your own soul. Why? Because that's that's what we're up against. This is is the difference between souls in heaven or hell. That's why we've got to 
refute unsound doctrine. And we've got to do it with the kind of facility, with the knowledge of the Word of God, and the ability to refute those who are trying to sell you a bill of goods that will take you right to hell along with them. I mean, look at Second Peter as we close. This is, this is what God's Word itself says. This is, this is chapter 2 of Second Peter. You think, I just said something that was frightful? Listen to what Peter says, 2 Peter 2.2, And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Do you want to see the greed in the health and wealth prosperity movement? They're making money hand over fist at those people's expense. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of of what was going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the world, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones serious business isn't it and look at Jude Jude even goes further he's got picturesque language about them that is probably more picturesque more metaphors and similes and stories about false teachers than any other book of the New Testament He says, Beloved, verse 3, I was very eager to write you about our common salvation. Hey, I wanted to tell you about Jesus Christ and our common salvation. And I was really excited about telling you this. And this is going to be fantastic. And wait a minute. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I had to divert my presentation. Why? Verse 4, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for their, this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling he has kept in eternal chains until gloomy darkness until the day of judgment of the great day just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire yet in like manner these people also the ones that Jude is is refuting. They're relying on their dreams. They defile the flesh. They reject authority. They blaspheme the glorious ones. 
But when the archangel Michael contended with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he, the archangel Michael, did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. That means damn them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Wow! I've never said anything like that. That is picturesque language to sort of jolt us into seeing that truth is truth and error is error. And sometimes when you and I are having trouble distinguishing the the truth between those two, the idea is this, that truth must prevail and error must be stamped out. It must be talked about. It must be public. No wonder Paul speaks about Hymenaeus and Alexander. No wonder he talks about Janus and Jambres and Moses' day. He actually talks about these people. They're, they're in the Scripture by name. This is serious business. This is what we're up against. I've had to do this before. This is... This is not just talking about one individual. It's talking about movements and ideologies and schemes. And this is is where we are. This is our our 21st century hors d'oeuvres of all kinds of filthy things that if they get onto your lips, they destroy you. Oh, my friends, let's bow our heads and pray and ask God to deliver us from, from such filthy doctrine unsound. This is where we are. We're not, we're not saying, we're not talking about trying to act like we alone have the truth. There are many of God's servants out there. But we do know this. We are to have the ability as elders in a local church to discern between truth and error. And we need to speak about those who, when they are pervasive in their error, we expose them, we teach against them, we warn the flock. Lord, I pray that when there are books coming off of the presses by the millions, and these books, so many of them are are unsound, filthy, Doctrine fit only for the perverse. I pray that you would make us understand and know the truth in such a way that we can readily refute error. I pray for our elders. I pray for our leaders. And I invoke our congregation to do the same. Lord, raise up other men who can serve with us as elders so that we would be clearly protecting and teaching the flock.
Let us hold firm to these things to the end so that we would faithfully discharge the responsibility that we have. May it be so. May our ability to teach come not from ourselves, but from the very power of God Himself. In Jesus' name, amen.